welcome to Interdisciplinary. I'm Cal Cates. Um, so there's been a serious lapse of judgment here at Healwell HQ, and I've been allowed to run the show myself this week. Kathy is off in the wilds of British Columbia doing what Kathy does, and uh, so we'll miss her this week. But um, as always, this is the podcast uh, about people who take care of people and all the places and perspectives that lift us up. We love science, we love meaningful dissent, and we love to support our fellow human beings in making our world a place that is just, equitable, and loving beyond our own imagining. We are in season four, as you may know, and so the contest is still running. If you leave us a review and we read it on the show, you can get an interdisciplinary mug, a t-shirt, a 30-minute talk about whatever the heck you want with Cal and Kathy, or a conversation with Rebecca Sturgeon and Janet Penny, the authors of the now canonical text, uh, Integrative uh, Oncology Massage. Uh, So do that. Go out there. Write a review. Tell people why you listen. And as always, go out on the social medias and like us and love us and tell your parents and your pets and everybody else that they should be listening as well. The moment you've all been waiting for is finally here. This week's pun. I was wondering if you guys heard about the big sale on canoes. It's quite the ordeal. Oh. Right? (laughs) I know. So painful. You're welcome for that. Um, luckily, we have a doctor in the house today um, <laughs> who can help us with our, with our pun pain. Um, I am so excited to introduce you all to Dr. Rachel Beta. Um, did I get that right, Beta? Yeah, Beta, but it's all Beta. good. Okay, well, it's your name, so I want to I wanna say it right. Um, so Dr. Rachel Beta, who we met um, actually through... Um, she found a blog that I wrote, and we connected through that, and then... Um, after just a brief email exchange, it was really clear that we needed to have her on the show. And so I'm going to let you tell her, uh, tell us, tell, let her tell us why she's so interesting and fantastic. And then we'll just dive in and see what happens. So welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm super happy to be here. Um, so I'm Rachel Bita. I'm a um, internal medicine physician and um, I have been practicing medicine since they gave me the degree in 2001. Uh, I practice here in Seattle, Washington on Capitol Hill, and I co-own a small medical clinic um, providing adult primary care with um, two of my friends from residency. And um, gosh, let's see, I my other interests outside of medicine are trail running, being in the forest, being uh, muddy and frequently wet since it's Seattle. And I take my dog with me, and that makes me super happy. I also love being in an exam room with patients um, because otherwise I wouldn't be in medicine. Um, I have a lot of interest in medicine because primary care gives you that breadth where you can be interested in a lot of stuff, which is great. Um, but uh, one of my one of my biggest niches is providing gender affirming care for folks all over the spectrum, um, and I've been doing that for about a decade now, um, and it it's it's really good stuff. So that's sort of the brief uh, introduction about me. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, gosh, that already, like I had some questions in mind, but now as I hear you describe it, I mean, I, I feel like being a, a primary care provider now in this time, however we want to say it, seems like a, a tough job because I feel like things are so siloed, but also you're expected to know everything. And like, I mean, how do you juggle sort of the, um, 
People come to you for all kinds of things and also just for their sort of preventive care. But your practice is also um, really collaborative. And and one of the things when I was looking at your site, I guess my first question is, how do you work with your colleagues uh, in your office? Do you do you collaborate? Do you share patients? How does how does that whole scene work? Yeah, Um, we each have our own panel. So patients are they choose they don't we don't assign they choose they choose me or Dr. Sam Warren or Dr. Naomi Lee. And uh, we each have our own little sort of sub niches. And, um, but, you know, we all need vacations. We all occasionally get ill. We have, we all have kids we have to take care of. So we cover for each other and um, it's super great. It's pretty seamless. And um, I actually really like, I mean, I don't like having to be out, but when I am out and one of my two colleagues covers for me, sometimes they give me insight on a patient that I hadn't considered. So it's, it's a plus. Um, it's also great having two other super smart people there in the clinic with me. When I can't figure something out, I ask them both, hey, what do you think about this? So it's it's nothing but positive in my experience. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's, it's, it's been super great. And are you all MDs? You have DOs? All, all three of us are uh, internal medicine physicians, MDs. And that's it, it just sort of happened that way because um, we all three were in the same residency together at University of Washington, so we just knew each other, and uh, and and that gets me to another subject, which is that you mentioned primary care being a bit challenging these days, and it, and it is because unfortunately it's undervalued by insurance companies, and so you know um, a specialist that performs a quick procedure can get reimbursed multiple times how much I can get for spending 45 minutes talking with a patient about all of their health issues because that's not valued, right? If you get out of scalpel, you get money. Um, And I don't do that. (laughs) Right. So we practice a different kind of um, setup. It's called direct primary care and it takes insurance companies out of the mix. Um, So we have a fixed monthly fee, like a gym membership. Patients pay us a monthly fee. And then there's no limit to what they can do. If they need to come see me every two days for several weeks because of something acute, same monthly fee. If they see me once every six months, same monthly fee. But it also means I don't have to make them come sit in the clinic to be able to bill insurance. I can make a phone call. I can text uh, with them, yeah. whatever we need. So it's it's really flexible and freeing. And it also allows us to have a smaller patient panel size. So I actually know every one of my patients. Uh, the average primary care doctor in the U S has like 1500 patients. There's no way your doctor knows you if you're one of 1500. Um, and I am fortunate enough to only have 225 right now. And I can tell you about each one of them. Yeah. So it's, it's good. Yeah. So tell me about, um, I mean, I, I think that this is something that is just now really coming to the fore as an issue when you, it sounds like an amazing model. And also I can see how it might exclude some people, um, in terms of the expense. And so do you guys have any flexibility? Is that something on the horizon for you in terms of like, uh, you know, a sliding scale or, um, at this point, is it just kind of like, let's, let's prove this model works. And then we get creative about how to, you know, increase equity. Yeah, no, the the equity part has been really important from the beginning. Um, I before I joined this small practice with my friend, um, I worked at Pike Market uh, Medical Clinic, which is now called Neighbor Care Health um, Pike Market, and the patient population there is uh, full of folks who, uh, prior to the Affordable Care Act coming on board, most of them didn't have any insurance and had no resources, and so maintaining that sort of ability to care for everybody was important to me and to Dr. Warren when he founded the clinic. So what we do is we offer 
Um, I guess you could call it a sliding scale. What we do is we tell people if they can't afford the monthly fee, just let us know. And then we ask for a couple of self-reported metrics, like, you know, how much do you make? How much do you think you can afford? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then we go from there. So I, we set aside a certain percentage of our expected income to be, uh, set aside for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite a few of my folks, uh, my patients aren't able to pay the full fee and they pay me what they can. And it's also dynamic. Like, you know, the gig economy being what it is these days, a lot of people, uh, go in and out of employment. And so they'll tell me I can't afford to pay for a few months. I say, okay, fill out this quick, like three line form for me, just so that we're all on the same page. Um, and then they let me know when they can go back to paying the full fee. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it seems like that's, yeah. I mean, the healthcare, there's so many, I mean, we could go down a giant rabbit hole of the ways that the <laughs> system is not designed to <laughs> make access uh, important, but yeah. so then, so then when you, you said that you, uh, your sort of niche in the, in the practice is gender affirming care. So as a primary care provider, do people come to you not maybe seeking gender affirming care, but in your care for them, you notice that maybe this is kind of support they need? Like what, how does it show up in your practice and, and what do you really do in that sphere? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, first of all, we try to make it visibly obvious when people come into the clinic that we are here for the LGBTQ plus community. Um, there's a big old uh, pride flag on one wall and a big old trans flag on the other wall. and um, we try to make it, you know, we have handouts about resources and we have just one bathroom with just bathroom on it, you know, like all the things that make it (laughs) visibly obvious. So, um, so yeah, I I think a lot of folks call wanting gender affirming care. uh, But I've had several patients that um, came to see me for other reasons. And after being my patient for a couple of years, they say, Hey, I, I wanted to talk to you about something. And then they tell me that um, uh, they they need hormones, they want gender affirming care, they've realized something about themselves, or they knew it all along, but they never felt comfortable talking to a medical par- care provider. Um, so yeah, that's happened uh, many times. Yeah. Well, and I wonder, I realize now that I asked a very sort of narrow question, because when I think of gender affirming care, I think of people who want to have medical support to have their outer body match their inner experience. But like, I'm thinking about my own nurse practitioner that I see as my primary care provider. And I, aside from signing the form that I had to have signed when I had my top surgery, we don't, she provides gender affirming care because it matters to her that I identify as non-binary and that like, like I have to go see her in two weeks for a gynecological exam and I won't go to anybody else because I don't, I, I know that she sort of gets me and she understands that like, I would rather do anything else then have a gynecological exam and be reminded sort of of the female parts sure. of her body. But I understand the importance of that from a health perspective. And so I feel like even though she is very unlikely to ever help me get hormones or anything, if I decide to do that, I feel like I'm getting gender affirming care. So I wonder, I mean, it's a big spectrum. Sometimes you're helping yeah. people actually transition, but sometimes you're just being a good person who sees the person in front of you. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, and it's things like, I mean, and it took me a long time to, (laughs) it took me a long time and a lot of iterations to learn and learn again and learn more. And uh, I, of course, like many physicians who got their degree around the turn of the millennium, um, I was not taught anything about gender affirming care in medical school. Um, It was not on the curriculum. 
and any talk of, uh, of, of trans medicine at all was very binary, very, very binary. Yeah. Um, and so I learned on the job at Pike market. Um, not only is Pike market medical clinic, neighbor care, Pike market, really great for underserved folks of, of any type, but, uh, it was the first, as far as I know, and I hope I'm not giving this history wrong. It was the first clinic that very, uh, definitely provided gender affirming care to folks, um, as far back as 1980s, as far as I know. Um, so I learned on the job there, it was somewhere people knew they could come. And there was a doctor there who had learned from another doctor who had learned from another doctor. And so when I showed up, they're like, Hey, we have folks that need gender affirming care. Are you interested in doing that? Um, and, and so, yes, they taught me on the job. It's the other thing I have to put out there is like, you know, medical culture is very rooted in, uh, you must be thoroughly trained in something before you even think about doing it. You have to be trained by people who know what they're doing. You have to be signed off. It has to be very official because you have to be able to cover your ass, right? What if you get sued? So when I showed up and they're like, would you like to do gender affirming care? Would you like to learn? And I was like, oh, I'm not signed off on that. I didn't learn it in residency. I don't know. You know, (laughs) is this okay? Can I do this? Can I do this? And so um, Pike market was a little bit roguish at that time. And like, well, yeah, we do the care that needs to be provided. And I don't, I don't know, do you want to do yeah. it or not? So, <laughs> right. so I like that kind of thing. So it's all in. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I also had to f- learn and adapt along the way over the last decade, learn a whole lot more. And now, oh gosh, like we thought we were being super progressive in med school when we were taught to ask, do you have sex with men, women, or both? And that was super progressive. And now right. it's like, it's not about, do you have sex with men or women? It's like, what kind of health risks do I need to consider because of the good sex you're having? And like, what kind of parts are involved with the good sex you're having? And what should I be thinking about? <laughs> right, right. Well, and so when you're, because this is such an interesting thing, we've been we've been talking a lot about the, the fear on the part of providers of uh, alienating people who are cisgendered and who like, you know, one of my friends is a primary care provider. And she said that, you know, she now asks, do you have sex with a sperm producing partner? And that like, (laughs) she's like, it's a, it's a weird, but accurate question to ask. And if you are asking a cisgendered heterosexual person, female about that, or male, I guess, like, do you, you know, are you, they're afraid of risking their relationship by appearing lefty you know, yes. and appearing and and it's so, I have such a struggle with like, this has become political that like human rights yep. and seeing all of the variables within humans is you are a crazy Democrat, <laughs> a crazy you know, socialist. And so like Seattle is obviously a pretty progressive place, but yes. I'm sure you have, how do you, how do you deal with that tension yourself? Or do you even experience that tension? Oh, I occasionally experience it, but I don't care anymore. Like, you know, <laughs> I found like, first of all, once I got past 40, I care a lot less. <laughs> it is a magical threshold, right? <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, just, I become more comfortable with just asking people. And I mean, you know, let's, I, I talk about vaginas and penises and anuses and everything all day long. And it's not weird to me anymore. And so, you know, I ask like, you know, hey, does the person you have sex with have a penis or a vagina? And you know, what what are you concerned about? And you know, that sort of thing. So, um, and you just you just the, the basic thing is you you don't presume you don't presume anything about anybody. You know, you ask open ended questions. Um, and uh, 
Yeah, and it's even extended to my <laughs> to my kids. So I have a 16-year-old at home. And uh, well, I have two kids, actually, but the older one is 16. And um, she's it's it's fabulous. She's quite out and queer and proud and uh, uh, mostly dates girls. Um, but I said, hey, you know, if you ever find yourself around somebody who might be producing sperm in your general direction, use a condom. <laughs> Excellent. Good talk, mom. Good talk. <laughs> she was. She rolls her eyes. She's like, Ugh. yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. You're gonna thank me for that, young lady. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So uh, that's an interesting. I mean, I, I don't even think this is a, a question that can be sort of reasonably answered, but I I, I want to ask it anyway. I know that when you and I first connected on email, you shared with me your own sort of um, seemingly quote normal you know, family, but then, you know, you lift up the covers and you're like, Oh, look at all the layers here. And I wonder yeah. if you, if you're not comfortable sharing, I, I totally get that. Um, but if you no, are, cool. I, I would love to hear about, um, yeah. How, how you guys are undercover. <laughs> yeah, no, totally cool. Um, yeah. It's funny because, you know, you look out from the outside, it looks like a, a, a white male, a white female and two cute kids and uh we look so heteronormative and so you know in the box um but i think the only one of us who's not actually queer is my husband uh bless his soul <laughs> <laughs> and he's surrounded by uh you know i i am i identify as uh queer but i've been living in this like thick layer of like heteronormative privilege uh that i totally recognize um you know, forever. And then our two kids, uh, our older child is uh, cisgender, but queer. And um, our younger child um, came out about a year ago as trans. And um, it's like, I've been doing this for a decade for a good reason now. I mean, for so many good reasons, but now for my own family. Um, and so, yeah, our younger, we thought was a boy is a girl. And she, um, I was like, great. I know what to do here. We got her on blockers and cause she was just on the cusp of puberty. Oh. So we got her on blockers and, um, because I'm hooked up in the community here, it was really easy to find her a super good therapist and a super good hormone provider. And, um, yeah, so it's it's fine. We got a big old pride flag hanging out front, but you know we live on Capitol Hill, so everybody has a pride flag. It's yeah. super welcoming. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think I, I wonder if sometimes my patients are wondering like, why are you why are you doing this? This is why are you doing this? You know, and so I don't really I don't walk into the room and tell my patients exactly all my my personal business because it's kind of not relevant. I mean, maybe it is. I don't know, but um, I'm, I'm sure some of them wonder. If they ask, I tell them. Yeah, because I'm not hiding anything. It's yeah. just I don't want to go. You know, there's the also thing of like, are you queer enough? Right? Like, I don't right. know. It, it, do I get to count as queer because I'm married to a white dude? Like, does that matter? I I don't know. So I don't I don't. Yeah. If people ask, I tell them. But otherwise, I don't go around shouting it. Yeah, yeah. I think there's strength and allyship in in all the layers. I mean, you know, we just had our uh, we just had a just care um, a social justice and healthcare conference that we called just care and. Our um, keynote speaker on the first day was Dr. Chase Anderson, and I don't know if you're familiar with him, oh, but yeah, he's yeah. great. So, you know, he he talks about how you know you show up into a consult with a kid as a psychiatrist with pink hair and like you know he dresses he dresses queer so to speak, right? And so he is clearly out and queer, and I think there's real value in that. And I also feel like it's great to know that 
you don't actually have to have pink hair and like a leopard shirt to be queer. <laughs> and that queer is, is an internal experience and a state of mind as much as it might be outward expression. And I, yeah. I, I guess I feel like, yeah, I mean, that question of are you queer enough is one that I think a lot of us ask and <laughs> sort of wonder. And, and I think it is confusing for people who don't consider themselves queer. But I also feel like more and more people are going to be identifying as queer as we stop telling the lies about what it means yeah. to be not queer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think so. And I mean, you know, you, you don't choose who you love. You don't choose who you wind up being attracted to. And, you know, I fell in love with a great guy. And so here we are. Um, just yeah. it is what it is. So how do you um, navigate and maybe, I mean, I guess maybe as a primary care provider, this isn't part of your navigation. It's more a referral, but I know that the, the the teasing apart of sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, like, yeah, the, you know, I, I don't know what my question is, but I think you do from the look on your face. Like, <laughs> what happens with your patients who are like, just confused? And like, yeah. I, I don't see anything that looks like how I feel. And I don't know what to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I know my strengths and my weaknesses. And I would say I'm not a therapist. Mm -hmm. um, and I highly, highly recommend I mean, I think therapy is good for everybody. Everybody's got something they can work on, right? <laughs> um, and so I try to not insist, but I very definitely suggest recommend uh, that they could find a good therapist. Yeah, because a good therapist, I mean, we are we are super lucky in Seattle to have a whole lot of gender competent therapists. Yeah. Um, to find therapists to talk about it. I also, I presented as, gosh, I never presented as, oh, oh, you, you're, you're this? Well, here's what you have to take. It's like, here's the menu. Let me describe to you all the items on the menu. And let me tell you about all the, what the menu items will do in theory. Yeah. What sounds like you? What sounds like it fits you? What are your goals? What do you want to see your outer body look like? What does your inner body feel like? And how do we pick the right things off this menu? And so that's how I approach it. Yeah. Do you, do you have any sense of like, cause for me, I, as you know, I mean, on my blog, I, I shoot my mouth off a little bit about my own experience, but I feel like, you know, they're my own, I guess, transition, if you want to call it that has been like a 25 year process that partly is because culture wasn't up to speed and there weren't options, but also because that was my path, I feel like there's real value in there, in it taking time. And like, yeah. So like, it took me a long time to come around to top surgery. And I thought, oh, after top surgery, I'm probably going to want hormones. But after top surgery, I was like, no, that's, we just hit the spot. Like, and, and I, I feel like there's such momentum to get out of the discomfort of not feeling like you belong that I, I wonder, like, I don't think people are being forced into transition, but I also know that it's hard to watch patients suffer in this not knowing. And yeah you know, how much influence do you have? Do you feel like you need? Do you, I mean, in that process where you, do you say to patients like, so there's no rush here. Like you can do this for a little bit and see how it feels or oh, like, sure. is that ever a thing that happens in your process with patients? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. And I, I, I also tell them like, I don't want you to rush on anything. Some of this is reversible if you stop, but some of it mm -hmm. isn't. Some of it takes months to really start physically seeing things. But some of it, you know, might start to happen more quickly than you expect. And so I don't want you to rush into anything that's not going to be reversible. Um, but I also tell them that 
you know, taking one dose of testosterone or one dose of estrogen is not going to flip a switch that can't be unflipped. And so sometimes um, I also don't want to gatekeep, like there's been so much gatekeeping. So I never sell them. I don't think you're ready. I never tell somebody no, I never do. And I never make anybody come in with a letter or a signature or whatever. Like, it's enough for me that you're an adult. That's the other thing. I have the benefit of only treating people who are 18 and older. So I don't have to worry about parental consent. I don't have to worry about age of majority. If I treated children, I'd have to completely rethink and learn more. Yeah. But I have the privilege of only seeing adults. So when somebody comes to me who's 18 plus, I don't question them. I say, you know, if that's your truth, that's good enough for me. So then we talk about what they would like. And I tell them, you know, again, like, one dose of testosterone, I think it's going to be pretty informative because um, I did have, it's pretty rare. Usually by the time people come to me, they know they've been waiting. It's bursting out of them sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they want the hormones yesterday. And um, But I've had a couple, uh, well, not very many, but one in particular who I gave hormones to. And they came back and they're like, I'm not really sure this is doing what I thought it was going to do. It's not really making me feel all affirmed and stuff. And so we stopped and we're like, okay, let's stop. Let's think about it. Let's wait. Yeah. Do you have a therapist? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I feel like it's going to continue to evolve and I hope there's there's space for it to evolve because I I do I I feel like there's a real um our culture is not designed for nuance and people are very nuanced and I feel like so much of what is happening for at least younger folks that I keep hearing from about like, yeah, I've always felt sort of, you know, not in the right body or whatever. And I feel like for, again, for me, my end of one is that like, I'm not in the wrong body. I'm in the wrong culture. And like, as the culture shifts, I wonder if there will be, I guess, just more space for um, expressing and being different without necessarily feeling the need to change your hormonal makeup or to have surgery. I mean, I, I'm in full support of when people need that, but I feel like there's a real, there's a rush to be like the third leg of the binary, right? Like I, I don't think here or there. And so if I do this, then that will work. And yeah. Um, Cause there's still not room for like, well, I'm a little bit this, I'm a little bit that. Yeah. 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 And, and I've had a few patients who um, knew that they wanted to be more to the masculine side of where they started out. Mm-hmm. And we work together to find the right hormone regimen and masculinize them some. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then once they got some of the irreversible changes of masculinity, like a little bit lower voice, a little bit of beard hair, that's probably going to stay. Yeah. Um, they felt like I got the sweet spot now, but I don't want to keep the testosterone on. I, I want to go back to my normal hormone cycles, but now I got some of the physical changes that I really needed to be me. Uh-huh. And so like, there's definitely room for that. So, I mean, again, like everybody, it's totally individualized. There's not like, Oh, I'm sorry. I don't do that. Cause you didn't fit the protocol. It's like, there's no protocol. It's yeah. as long as you're safe. And that's the thing, as long as you're safe, like I'm going to check labs, I'm going to make right. sure that we didn't give you so much testosterone that your red blood cell count is off the chart. Cause then you'll get blood clots. I'm going to make yeah. sure that, you know, that we're, <laughs> that sort of thing. So, so there has to be safety involved, but also I vehemently disagree with people who say like, Oh, well, these hormones made your cholesterol go high. So clearly we got to stop the hormones. Like that, that's never a thing. Like if you need hormones, you need hormones. Yeah. We treat the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, what a, yeah. It's going to be fascinating as time goes on. I think (laughs) um, thank you for what you do and for anyone like you who is just making that space possible for people to just figure out what they need to feel themselves. Yeah. And safe. Um, (laughs) So I, I would love to just keep talking to you about this, but I also really want to talk to you as I, as I warned you in advance, I'm curious about everybody (laughs) in your practice. It looks like um, does what's called obesity medicine. And I yeah. don't, I, I looked up a whole bunch of stuff about it and it's kind of all over the map. And yeah. I, I don't really care what obesity medicine is. I want to know what you think it is and what does it look okay. like in practice and like, how does it show up for you and your fellow clinicians at your particular practice? Yeah. And first of all, like what a loaded term, right? I hate the word obesity. I'm just going to say that. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. The only reason we use it is because that is what that board calls itself—the totally. American Board of Obesity Medicine—and I am technically certified in obesity medicine, but I hate the word obesity. So, um, we got in—we got interested in learning more about it because, um, uh, quite frankly, I had patients come to me and say they wanted to lose weight. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was patient-led, and I realized I didn't know enough about it. Mm. And in medical school, you know, again, lack of education in American medical school system, we had two weeks of nutrition in four years of medical school. Yeah. And weight (laughs) loss was basically like, eat less, exercise more. Right. And, and basically, we're all taught weight loss pills don't work, don't bother, people just need to have more discipline. So Uh, that's uh, what I was taught. And it's terrible, right? It's terrible. It's terrible. And at the same time, I mean, there's a pretty decent thick layer of evidence that there are some medical conditions that are exacerbated by carrying around extra weight on your frame. Okay. So I don't want to just totally discount like, you know, any weight is a good weight because clearly at the extreme ends, like if somebody is massively undernourished, Uh that's not healthy. Right. And, um, you know, I've seen patients die at the extreme ends uh, of the weight spectrum because they literally couldn't ventilate their lungs anymore because there was so much weight coming down on their chest. So at the extreme ends, it's pretty obvious. But within that, it's not obvious. And the medical institutions will tell you, oh, it is obvious. We know that your BMI has to be less than 25. We don't even, we don't even have evidence that proves that. If you look at the lowest mortality rates on the mortality curve, Mm-hmm. It's people who are technically overweight. Yeah. Technically. <laughs> yeah. So the whole thing breaks down, right? So I did this because I wanted to be better educated about when a patient comes to me and they tell me I would like to lose weight and I've tried all the usual things and it's mm-hmm. not working and I don't know what's going on and I don't feel good in my body. Can you help yeah. me? Yeah. So that's where I started from. And and I'm also a science nerd. I just wanted to understand like clearly it's not one size fits all clearly. Right. And so what is going on on a cellular level and what do we know and what can we bring to the table? So it was all of that. Um, I also will say, I, uh, I have been told by patients many times that they have gone into a doctor's office before and they've said, my knee hurts. And the doctor says, well, you need to lose weight. Right. Or whatever's going on with me. Oh, well, you need to lose weight. And they tell me quite honestly, they're like, you don't think I know that I'm larger than the average human. You don't think I see that in the mirror. Like, I'm not stupid. Why are you telling me this? Yeah. So I never lead with that. Uh, in fact, I don't mention weight at all unless a patient brings it up. Mm-hmm. 
or in very rare cases, if there's a medical condition that we have tried to treat with all the other things Mm -hmm. and their medical condition is serious. And I know that excess weight contributes to that medical condition, then I'll bring it up. Mm -hmm. I hate bringing it up. I never want to be the one to start the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So I try to let patients bring it up if it's important to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder Well, so, so one of the things that makes me, every time I see my NP, I I love her a little bit more. And and something I learned about recently is that um, when you get weighed for, I just went for my annual physical and I decline to be weighed most times. Um, Sometimes I forget, but um, she, she was telling my partner who had gone a few weeks earlier that she is legally bound to counsel patients if their BMI is at a certain level and that her, (laughs) she has a workaround because she has read the science and feels like the BMI is not a thing that we should be using as any kind of a real benchmark. And um, so what do you do around that? Because as a primary care provider, I assume maybe it's state by state, but do uh, do you have a legal obligation to counsel or like an insurance based, well, I guess you're out of the network. So maybe it's not a thing that you have to worry about. Yeah. So that's, it's an insurance thing really, right? Like insurance needs you to have checked so many boxes on a physical exam and you have to do these vital signs and the vital one of the weight is one of the vitals. And, you know, if somebody's blood pressure is like two points above what they consider optimal, you have to counsel them on blood pressure and you have to document it in your chart. Same thing with weight, right? So we're out of that system now. I don't have to. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So you don't, so do you, I mean, does the BMI, uh, tell me what you think about the BMI, I guess. I want to just leave it that broad. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I don't think it's that useful. Honestly, I think I, I, I can use it to my advantage if I need to, like if a patient wants, if a patient tells me they would like to lose weight Uh and so again, patient led, uh-huh. And we, you know, first of all, I don't just, I don't just say, well, you need to do this. I say, okay, well, let's check. Are you insulin resistant? Are, are carbs your friend or are carbs your enemy based on how much insulin you're releasing for a certain glucose level? Uh-huh. So we look for that. And then we try to tailor, you know, and I ask them, how do you eat? What do you like to eat? Like, what are your circumstances? Do you, do you run out of resources for food by the end of the month? Like, tell me what you do. And then we're going to do enough blood work, make sure your thyroid's okay, make sure all these other things are fine. Is your liver normal? Once I get enough data points and enough history, then we create um, a general framework for like, I hate to say eat this, don't eat that. But I say in general terms, this is what your body seems to be asking for and what your body's probably going to have trouble with. Uh Um, And then And then if we need to wind up using a medication to assist with that, uh, you know, there's some medications that insurance will pay for. So, so even though we don't bill insurance, our patients still have insurance to pay for prescriptions and ER care and stuff like that. Sometimes, not always. Um, And so there are a couple of medications that you can only have if your BMI is above a certain number. Wow. Okay. And so I'll use that to my advantage if I can get it paid for, for them. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I just will. It sounds like that. I mean, I think this is the thing that's really missing in our cultural understanding of weight and how it connects or doesn't connect to health is what you just described. I don't think is what most providers do that in any kind of care, but certainly when it comes to weight and, and quote, unquote obesity, that what are the things that are informing your eating habits? And let's actually look at what your specific body does in response to you know, different types of food. And so that you and I can come up with a plan and that if this is important to you, I will support you in this the best way that I can. Um, And I wonder, it sounded like you sort of alluded to this, but 
I feel like my tension as a provider would be, and I guess sort of is, even as a massage therapist, I, people, you know, bring these questions to us that, you know, is it about how you look or is it about how you feel? And not that yeah. how you look is irrelevant, but culturally we have to really join forces in pushing back on how we're quote supposed to look. And, yeah. uh, you know, most of us would be very unhealthy if we looked the way we're quote supposed to look. So, yeah. you know, how do we get to that place with, with the people we serve of like, so talk to me about why this is important to you and how can I support you in being I don't want to say like loving your body. You know, one of our other speakers at our conference was Sirius Bonner and she talked about moving beyond body positivity and including weight stigma in your intersectional lens, that this is a yeah. big piece of understanding ourselves, but that there is a, a place where your body will be happy and healthy. And that place might not look the way you want it to look. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And <laughs> yeah. And even when patients come to me and say they want to lose weight for various reasons. One, like they've realized they've started to snore to the point where their sleep's not good. They wake up tired. They have trouble climbing stairs to their apartment and they didn't used to have trouble climbing stairs. And it's things like that. If they come to me with that and they say, I want to lose some weight because of that, um, you know, then I, we try to come up with, well, what will make you, if that's your goal, you know, feeling healthy and feeling like you have energy, what would get you there? Yeah. And it's not going to be a BMI of between 20 and 25 for a lot of folks, right? For most folks. Um, right. And for most folks, if you actually look at the data, you can make massive improvements in blood pressure, in diabetes, in energy, and all this stuff. Well, energy is kind of a fuzzy topic, but but the objective things that we love to measure in medicine, you can make a massive improvement with um, 10 pounds of weight loss. You know, so if somebody, you're not talking like, well, you have to get down to your college fighting goal or whatever, like, <laughs> yeah, right. it, it can be like, you know, 10 pounds might make a huge difference in how you feel. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually will try to dissuade patients if they have an un, un, uh, unrealistic goal. Yeah. If somebody's like, well, I'd like to weigh this much because that'll put me on the chart here. And then I think I'll weigh the, I'll be able to wear the size of clothes I want. And I'll tell them, you know, I don't, I don't know that that's a good idea. And here's why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think so. So it sounds like at least in your practice, the, the practice of obesity medicine is again, <laughs> distasteful in calling it that, but understandably yeah. backed into that corner, but that it's really about talking with patients about how they want to feel and yeah. what's reasonable for them to expect and what's reasonable for them to, I mean, I don't even want to say adhere to, you know, we're trying to even move away from like that non-compliant language, oh, right? right, right. <laughs> That's not a thing. Um, but yeah, like how do I, how can I support you? Which I guess I feel like as the doctor that I am not, that's what doctors are supposed to do is to say like, I am here to provide resources for you. I'm not here to shame you. I'm not here to like tell you what to eat and not eat, but here's what I see. Let's put this into your plan so that you can be closer to how you want to feel. Cause that's my goal is to help you function the way you want to function and feel the way you want to feel. Exactly. What I tell my patients is the bus metaphor. And I'm sure uh, my colleagues are tired of me using the bus metaphor, but I, I say, it's your bus. You're driving your bus. You know where you need to go. I don't know what all is in your bus with you, you know, but like right, totally. you're driving it. Yeah. I'm sitting in the front seat. Maybe I'm sitting in yeah. the front seat. I have one patient. I tell him I'm just hanging off the back bumper, trying to hang on. <laughs> But uh, yeah. but I'm trying to sit in the front seat and help you navigate that bus. But it is your bus and you're driving it. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. And so then how do you deal with I wonder I wonder if the if the 
patients who are attracted to a practice like yours, maybe this is not as common, but um, my cousin is a primary care provider and, and she's always talking about how people want to, uh, well, they come in with articles and things about what's wrong with them, or they say, you know, I think it's this, can you just run a blood panel? And then from the results, I'll find a specialist. Like, do you, <laughs> does that happen to you? And what do you, what do you do with that? Um, <laughs> I will say I, 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 I really dislike being treated like I'm the front desk concierge at a hotel and they just tell me what they need and then I make it happen like that. Yeah. I didn't go to medical school for that. Right. <laughs> so um, I, but I try not to dismiss people either, right? Everybody wants validation. They all want validation. Totally. So if somebody comes into me and says, I'm pretty sure I have this. I did a lot of research on the internet and I'm pretty sure I have this and these are all the tests I want. I'll say, oh, okay, let me let me take a look and let's talk about it. And so I start with like, oh, and I try to validate like, oh yeah, this test, let me tell you what that does. And it's great. Because I had one patient, for example, who came in with a whole list of blood tests. They didn't even know what any of them did, but something on the internet said, this is what you need. And so once I explained it all, and I mean, this is a smart person. This is yeah. a really great patient, right? Like there's, I'm not denigrating any of it. But they didn't even know what these tests did. And once I explained them all and I said, you know, the internet will tell you you need all these tests for this. Um, but if this one is normal, then you don't need the rest of this because it's a flow chart, right? Uh-huh. So I went through all the tests and I said, what are your symptoms? What are you concerned about? You have a conversation. So you don't say, well, I'm going to order what I'm going to order. You, you have a conversation because I also, I mean, you know, our clinic is named Wise Patient, but like it's real sometimes. Well, most of the time it's real. I have patients come in and I, I am taught by my patients and um, I never want to tell somebody they're wrong because they might be right. And I don't want to screw that up. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I wonder how many, how many practitioners miss really important things because they, they don't make the time to listen or just don't even have the, I mean, it doesn't take more time, right? It's, it's an approach. Um, sometimes well, and it, it, it sometimes takes more time. And I think, you know, the, the typical system, the typical internal medicine primary care doc has to see 21 to 24 patients in a day. And so that's, you know, 20 to 15 to 20, maybe 30 minutes if you're lucky, but 20 minutes. And that means your MA is going to room the patient for five minutes. And right. anyway, by the time you get down to it, you know, the statistics, it's like you get maybe eight minutes for a visit. Maybe. Yeah. Um, you can't really listen as long as you need to in eight minutes. So I, that's another reason I opted out of that system. I wanted to be able to sit down and you know, the question of death, the question of death with a patient is, is there anything else you wanted to talk about today? Uh huh. Because they're going to tell you something, right? Definitely. And you can't, if you have eight minutes. And so I never asked that question when I was at Pike market, cause I couldn't. Yeah. But my but goal, powerful question. Yeah. And so at wise patient, my goal is always to get to, what other questions do you have? And to look, to wait for their eyes to go up to the ceiling and go, I think that's it. And then I get up and I leave, right? And so every now and then I can't because somebody will have a very long list and I do have other people scheduled, but but I try to get to, did I miss anything? What other questions do you have? Yeah. So talk to me about how um, one of the other conversations we've been having in our um, interdisciplinary community is about um, pay structures and and sort of like the ways that we're taught to like, I'm worth this much. And, and that I, I wonder, and again, if you don't want to answer this, you can, you know, take it off the air, but um, are you, are you taking a personal loss as compared with other primary care providers by working in this model financially? Good question. I did for a few years because, mm -hmm. uh, 
Dr. Warren and I had to build this practice up and, uh, and Dr. Lee has, as she's come on board with her panel, um, because we didn't step into a big system that handed us a panel of a thousand patients, right? We had to build it up word of mouth one by one. Okay. Uh, so it took a while to build this practice and, um, and initially we were doing the insurance model in the very beginning and I had 1500 patients and it was brutal and I didn't like it and we were burning out. So anyway, we changed to this DPC. You lose about 90, 80 to 90% of your patients when you go to DPC. I bet. And so the ones who stayed though, uh, start paying a monthly fee of a predictable income, et cetera. So I would say it was really important to us that not only do we practice medicine that's good for patients and good for doctors, but we also wanted to not do it at a loss. We wanted to make sure that we were meeting median income for Seattle yeah. primary care. Uh-huh. And uh Dr. Warren is full-time. I am half-time and I'm half-time by choice because my kids and I'm fortunate enough to have a spouse that also has a very good income. So Mm -hmm. I recognize that privilege. Not everybody has that. Yeah. Um, But I can work half-time. So yeah. So this past year, (laughs) we finally made it all uh, the, the model works. Uh Um, and Dr. Warren brought home median income uh, for full-time and I brought home median income for half-time. So we were making it work. Okay. Yeah. And it's, and it's, so yeah, I guess this is, this is the question is uh, the idea in America is that if you can make more, you should, and you're a chump if you don't. And, and <laughs> you know, like, the future, that's not sustainable if we really want to create community and equity and, and sort of, so I feel, I feel empowered by what the, the choice that you've made that, and that this is a thing that can work and that yeah. it means we look at things differently and that, you know, um, you can have everything you want as long as you're willing for it to look different than you thought it was going to look. And, you yeah. know, yeah. Yeah. And, and we don't have a fancy glass office. We don't live in one of those big downtown buildings. We right. have a little clinic tucked up above a, a restaurant and we have no nurses and no front desk staff. So when you okay. come into our clinic, it's an empty waiting room and you have to sit down and wait for somebody to come get you, which okay. can be a little unsettling. <laughs> yeah. It's also very quiet and private. Nobody's looking at you. Yeah. Um, so there's just three medical assistants and three doctors and that's all we have. Um, and so that keeps our overhead low. So we had, you know, little, little things that we cut, but that does not affect patient care. Yeah. And so, I mean, again, I have so many more questions, but one that I'm really interested in, um, how, so if you, um, you like to do gender affirming care and you all do obesity medicine and you all, um, my read is that you, um, have sort of an equity mindset and sort of an access mindset, but yeah. you know, one, one person can spoil the soup. So if right. you have three MAs and three physicians, do you, how do you all make sure that you're on the same page in terms of making people feel welcome? And like, you know, I don't know, training about pronouns and training about like how we talk about big bodies and things like that, that, you know, you can easily lose a patient and then create a ripple of, you know, negative feedback by yeah. one person just not understanding. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, when we hire our medical assistants, um, we tend to we tend to attract folks who want to go into medicine, who want to be MDs, ARNPs, PAs. So they're like sponges when they come to our clinic; they want to learn everything, and they're on the younger side. And the flip side is they only stay with us a year or two, and then they go off to PA school or med school or whatever. Okay. But it's a great trade off. So they're the they're the folks who come in with the right kind of mindset. Um, mm-hmm. I personally, when I interview somebody, that's one of my interview questions, like, hey, look, you know, probably a good, well, huge percentage of my panel is in the LGBTQ family, a lot of them are trans, Um, it is critical to me that you understand that is uh, one of the important things here. And, 
that you be able to use the pronouns, use, you know, use uh, anatomic language rather than gender specific language, stuff like that. So I, it's part of the screening process. Like I don't hire them unless I feel like that's going to work. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I, I've known Sam Orens for 20 years and I've known Naomi Lee for almost as long. And so, you know, we, we also know each other so well that it's going to work. Yeah. Um, Sam's niche is more cardiovascular prevention. Uh, He can talk in more depth about cholesterol than anybody I've ever met. If you're worried about your heart, he is the guy you should see. Um, But he also recognizes that although he is fully on board uh, with gender affirming care and, and is great, um, it's not his expertise. And so um, patients tend to gravitate to me, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's like, we all have our little areas. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that makes sense. And I mean, with six people, it's more manageable than 30 people. And yeah, if you guys grow or I don't know if that's, so that was my next question, actually, like, what's your vision for your, for your practice? And I don't know if there's a, if there's a tip for, for patients in our listening audience about like how to interact with their primary care providers or what they might be missing. Yeah. Ooh, that's a good question. Gosh. Um, I mean, we do want to grow the practice, but we want to grow it small and organically. We don't want to just suddenly have a merger and then have it spiral out of control. Yeah. Um, so we're growing, you know, one physician at a time when it's appropriate. All three of our panels are now full. We have a waiting list. I occasionally have a few spots open that I keep open for gender affirming care folks because uh-huh. um, I don't want them to have to wait on a long wait list. Uh, but we do have a decent size waiting list for people who are not seeking gender affirming care. Um so we're looking for the fourth physician, but that's the way we're going to grow one at a time. Um, questions for people to ask their doctors. That's a great question or their providers in general. Um, I mean, I would say, don't be afraid to say what you need. It's mm-hmm. really good to know uh, what's super important to people. And it can be intimidating as heck to go into a doctor's office. I mean, I'm a doctor and I find when I go to a provider's office for some sort of medical care, I immediately clam up and I'm like, oh, I'm the patient. They're the provider. I'm a doctor. This is ridiculous. And if I feel this, I know everybody else feels this, right? Absolutely. And so for some of my patients who just come in there and like put me on my heels of like, look, people have done this to me in the past. That's not okay. Here's what I need from you. I love it. So like I would encourage people. And if their provider doesn't like that, it's not the right provider. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's a good tip. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, this is the this problem is with all of your guests is like, oh, I have a million more questions. Um, <laughs> I was threatened to have you back, but um, thank you so much for sharing with us and, and for what I know you're doing for the people that you are serving and um, and just for showing that a model like this is is valuable and viable and and is really happening. Thank you for being for inviting me and for your podcast and everything y'all are doing. It's awesome. I appreciate it. We'll, we'll keep up the good work together. And uh, you listeners, season four, remember the contest, leave us a review, tell your friends, your partners, pets, listen to the show. And uh, remember that Giving Tuesday is coming up on November 30th. Um, Healwell has set some pretty ambitious goals. We'd like to gain 25 new recurring donors. So those are people who give us a little bit of money every month, maybe 10 bucks, maybe 20 bucks, whatever you're feeling like you want to do um, so that we can feel your love year round and also plan for big, important projects and stuff. And uh, we're hoping to raise 30000 straight up dollars. So spread the word, get on our website, uh, donate when uh, Giving Tuesday gets here, November 30th, and keep listening. Thank you, guys.
Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening.